for, uh, for you to be here this summer, and uh, Jacob is a student at Boyce College in Louisville and kind of exploring uh, whether God's leading him into local church ministry. And so thankful to be able to be a part of your journey and just thankful as, as we look over uh, the past really five, six years of Soma Church, different interns and residents who have come through and we've been able to send out uh, to do ministry all over the country. So really thankful for you to be here. Thank you guys for being here today. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you for bearing with the heat in here today. Uh, we are going through the book of Exodus, and so it kind of feels like Egypt in here. And so um, hopefully we're, we're able to make it through, uh, but we are continuing our, our study in the book of Exodus. Uh, and today we come to one of the central passages in the book of Exodus, and I would even go so far as to say this is one of the central passages in the entire Bible. Because today we're looking at the story of the Passover, the Passover is the central reality of biblical faith. So whether you're a Christian or whether you're a Jew, whatever comes from biblical faith, um, th this is the center of biblical faith. At the center of the, Bible, the faith of the Bible stands a lamb. So for Jews, this means remembering God's deliverance, remembering what God did when he brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and gave them an identity as the people of God. And then for Jesus, who of course was a Jewish man, he sees his entire life and his entire identity and his entire mission in light of the Passover. Like, if you read the earliest biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, this is how he understood himself. This is how he understood what God had sent him into the world to do. This is how his earliest followers understood him. Very beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking, and he says to the crowd of people around him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's my hope. That's simply my hope today, that we will behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that we will see him for the glory and the beauty of who he is and that we will trust him for all of who he is and for all of what he's done. But honestly, in order to do that, you got to go back 1,500 years before Jesus. You got to go back to this second book of the entire Bible because what happens here in the Exodus, what happens here in the Passover sets the tone, lays the foundation for everything that comes after this in the book, in the entire Bible. And, and Let's just be honest about something here. Like when we read this story or when we hear this talk about a Passover and a lamb, that feels kind of weird to us. It feels kind of foreign to us. Most of us don't have sheep at home. Most of us don't spend time around sheep on a daily basis. I took my kids to the petting zoo this past Friday. That's the extent of my experience with sheep. And so you've got sheep, which first of all, that seems foreign to many of us. And then you've got the fact that they are endowing these sheep with some sort of religious significance. And it feels utterly foreign to us. And, and we got to stop for a minute and you got you to stop and you say, what's the deal here? This seems so strange. And yet when you get to the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you read all of this talk about a lamb. And you walk into church and people are singing songs and they're talking about being covered in the blood of the lamb. And you got to stop and say, what's the deal with the lamb? And does the lamb actually have anything to do with me today? Is this just some primitive Bronze Age religion? Have we evolved beyond this or does this have any relevance for our lives today? And I hope what we're going to see as we look into this text today is, yes, the story sounds kind of weird, and the whole lamb thing sounds foreign to us, and yet this has everything to do with you and me right here today. 
has everything to do with how we look at the world and how we look at each other, and most importantly, has everything to do with how we relate to God. Because in this passage today, God's going to show us three vitally important truths, three truths about who God is that have in many ways shaped the course of human history and have the power to shape your life as well. So three truths. Here's what we're going to see. One, God always does what he says he'll do. God always does what he says he'll do. Two, God is a God of both justice and mercy. And three, God saves his people through a substitute. God God always does what he says he will do. God is a God of justice and mercy, and God saves his people through a substitute. What we're going to find as we walk through is that they actually build on top of each other. So I want to do that. I want to look at those three realities, and then I want to stop at the end and just say, so what? So what? So what does this have, this story from 3,500 years ago that seems so foreign and probably so primitive to many of us in this room, what does this have to do with you and me today? So first, God always does what he says he'll do. He always does what he says he'll do. And if you think about that, those are really, there's really two sides to that coin. Because on the one hand, that is a very comforting reality. But on the other hand, that's a terrifying reality. Because on the one hand, this means God makes good on his promises. But on the other hand, this also means God makes good on his warnings. The book of Exodus, kind of the thesis statement of the book of Exodus, is God always fulfills his promises. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, 400 years before the Exodus, you find God making this promise to Abram. And he says to Abram, I want to make your descendants great. I'm going to multiply your descendants so that you have more descendants than the stars in the sky, more descendants than the sand on the, on the seashore. And and your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years, and then I'm going to draw them out. I'm going to bring them out, and I'm going to make them a great nation. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. So that's Genesis 15. Now, look at our text today, Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, not if, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So here's what's happening. The the Hebrews have been slaves for 400 years. They have been languishing under the maniacal, tyrannical, genocidal rule of a Pharaoh who literally thinks that he is a god on the earth. And the one true God steps in and he says, I am going to set my people free. I am going to confront Pharaoh, and I'm going to defeat him, and I'm going to bring my people out of slavery with a mighty hand. And not only that, he says, I'm going to do what I promised to do. I'm going to make you rich in the process. You are going to plunder the Egyptians. And so the people go to their neighbors, and they say, give me your silver and your gold. And they're like, yes, just leave. Just leave so all of these plagues stop. And they, they throw their money at them so that the people come out with great possessions. The truth is, God always makes good on his promises. He said 400 years ago that he would do that. No matter how bad things look, no matter how dark the night, no matter how oppressive the enemy, God always makes good on his promise to deliver his people. 
And some of you right now in this room are walking through some really hard times. You're walking through a painful marriage. You're walking through a painful divorce. You're walking through a painful season of singleness that looks like it might turn into a lifetime of singleness. Some of you are walking through health struggles, family struggles. Some of you are intensely disappointed with the way that your career has turned out. Some of you are struggling with crippling anxiety and crushing depression. Some of you feel like your heart is being ripped out right now because you desperately want to honor God with your sexuality, but trusting him and following him in that area of your life feels like death right now. And, and I don't have all the answers for these things. And, and I can't promise you that God will make your road easy. What I can promise you is that God will keep his promises. He will keep his promise to be with you, to never leave you, to never forsake you. He will keep his promise to use all of that pain and all of that struggle to make you more like Jesus. He will keep his promise that that is not the final word, that one day something better is coming. He will keep his promise to make the things that you feel like are killing you make you more alive than ever before. God always makes good on his promises. Sometimes it takes 400 years. Sometimes it seems like the gods of Egypt are winning, but God always makes good on his promises. And that's an immense comfort if you're part of the people of God, if you're trusting in him. And yet the flip side is also true because God doesn't just make good on his promises. God makes good on his warnings. See, what's about to happen here in Exodus 11, God warned Pharaoh about that all the way back in Exodus chapter 4. So look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God says, I'm giving you a chance here, Pharaoh. I'm warning you here, Pharaoh. Israel is my son. And I love my son, and I will do whatever it takes to set my son free. And so God begins sending these plagues, turns the Nile to blood, sends frogs and gnats and pestilence and locusts and darkness and all of these terrible things. And he gives Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to turn around, to let the people go. And time and time again, Pharaoh refuses Remember what we saw a few weeks ago. These, these plagues are not just random magic tricks. God is showing us something here. He is showing us that he is God and there is no other. He is showing the Hebrews and the Egyptians and the Pharaoh and the entire world that he is the unrivaled king and that no one can stand against him. These plagues are a confrontation between Yahweh, the one true God, and the gods of Egypt. And now he brings it to a head. Now he brings it to the final showdown. And he says, Pharaoh, I am going to free my son. And if I have to take you down in the process, I will. Exodus 11, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I'm going to pass through 
I'm going to kill all the firstborn sons. Now, here's why that is so utterly devastating. Obviously, it is utterly devastating to ever lose a child. I've got three kids. I would be utterly devastated if any of them dies. But God is very specific here. He says, I am going to kill the firstborn. Here's why that's significant. Because in the ancient world, all the hopes and dreams of the family rested on the firstborn son. All your economic hopes rested on him. All your social hopes rested on him. Even in some sense, your religious hopes rested on him. Because the firstborn was a representative for the entire family. So the firstborn received the bulk of the inheritance. The firstborn was the one who primarily carried on the family name. There is even archaeological evidence from ancient Egypt that the firstborn was kind of like a priest for the family. And they were kind of your link to your ancestors. They were your link even to the gods. And so this is why, this is why Pharaoh held so much power, because in Egyptian thought, the Pharaoh was the firstborn son of the gods. He was the son of Ra, the sun god. He's the favored one. He is the heir of the kingdom of the gods, and his dynasty is passed down through his firstborn son. And so when God says, I will kill your firstborn son, what he is saying is he is saying, I will tear apart the very fabric of your society. I will tear apart the very basis of your power, Pharaoh. And the one true God comes along and he says, Pharaoh, your gods are nothing. Your kingdom is nothing. Your power structures are nothing. This this whole society, this glorious society that you think you have built, it is nothing. I am the one true God. Israel is my son. Israel is the heir of my kingdom. Let my son go. And if you don't, I will destroy the very basis of your power and your kingdom. God makes good on his warnings. He's given Pharaoh a long leash, but that leash will not go on forever. Guys, that's a sobering aspect of God's character that, if we're honest, a lot of times we don't like to think about. But it is a reality that we need to deal with. No matter how confident you are in yourself or your own power or your own ability to manage the world, God always makes good on his warnings. Like maybe you feel like you're, you're doing okay right now. Maybe you feel like you're managing things just fine, doing things your own way, but you and I cannot avoid God forever. He always makes good on his promises, and he always makes good on his warnings. He always does what he said he will do. That actually leads us to the second reality, because he always does what he said he will do, promises and warnings. We see that God is a God of both justice and mercy. A God of both justice and mercy. Look again at verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Now, you might just jump over that, but actually this is something new that we haven't seen before. Because up to this point in the book of Exodus, God's kind of been striking Egypt from a distance. So he tells Moses, hey Moses, I want you to go and and you confront Pharaoh and you raise your staff and you turn the Nile to blood and you bring all these other plagues. And now God says, you know what, I've had enough, I'm stepping in. I am stepping in. I will go through the land of Egypt. God himself is going to step in. God himself is going to set his people free. And in some sense, that is a wonderful reality. But in another sense, that is a terrifying reality. Because that means that they are about to come face to face with the living God. It means that the judge is coming. And if you pay attention to verse 5 there, it doesn't just mean that judgment is coming for Pharaoh. It means judgment is coming for the slave girl at the handmill. 
Justice is coming for everyone in society from the greatest to the least. Judgment isn't just coming for our enemies. Judgment is coming for you and me. Man, how many of us, we're we're praying, right? We're praying for God to step into our lives and act. We're praying for God to step in and rescue us. We're crying out, God, would you undo the injustice that we see in the world? God, would you tear down these systems of abuse and oppression and injustice that we see all around us? And that is good and that is right and we should be crying out for those things. But as we do that, there's a problem. Because we gotta ask ourselves, do I really wanna come face to face with the living God? Like not just the God who's a figment of my imagination, not just the God who likes all the people I like and doesn't like the people I don't like, not just the God who plays by my rules. Do I wanna come face to face with the God who's a consuming fire? Do I want that God to step in? Do I want that judge to step in and to establish justice? Knowing what I know about myself, knowing what I know about my own heart and my own injustice and my own selfishness and my own rebellion against God. Because if I'm honest, I don't even keep my own standards. So how do I think I'm going to face God's justice? See, up to this point, the main problem that the Hebrews have been worried about is how to escape the judgment of Pharaoh. But now they've got a much greater problem because the question now is not how will we escape the sword of Pharaoh? The question now is how will we escape the sword of God? How will we stand in the presence of God? What will we do when we come face to face with God? They have been crying out for God to save them. They have been crying out for God to bring justice. They have been pleading with God to judge the wicked, and he is about to do that, and they are confronted with the terrifying reality that as they have cried down, called down judgment on the wicked, they haven't just called down judgment on Egypt. They have called down judgment on themselves. It's so interesting if you pay attention to these plagues. Because one of the things that sets these plagues, or this, this last plague, apart from all the others is this. If you look at the other plagues, especially the, the last six plagues that come before this, God is very explicit. He says, I'm going to make a distinction and I'm going to spare the land of Goshen. So the land of Goshen is the area of, of Egypt where the Hebrews live. So God sends all these plagues. He sends flies and he sends boils and he sends hail and pestilence and all these other things against the places where the Egyptians live, but he spares the parts of Egypt where the Hebrews live. But that's not what's happening in this last plague. What does he say in this last plague? He says, I will go through all the land of Egypt. No one's exempt from my justice. I'm the judge of all the earth. Hebrews, Egyptians, everyone. And so you've got this terrifying reality of the justice of God, and not just that God is going to bring justice on those people out there, but God's justice is coming for you and for me. And yet, and yet God says, I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going to be merciful to my people. I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to make a distinction. I am going to call you out and bring you to myself. And so the question is, how can he possibly do that? How can God establish justice and still be merciful to unjust, sinful people like you and me? That's the third reality, and this is the linchpin, and this is the key that brings it all together. The third reality is this. God delivers his people through the substitute. God delivers his people through the death of the substitute. Chapter 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. A lamb for a household. 
And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now, down at verse 11. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Look at that again, verse 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. One of the most beautiful promises in the entire Bible. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Because here's what God did not say. God did not say, when I see you, I will pass over you. He didn't say, when I see your religiosity, when I see your morality, when I see your success, when I, when I tally up your ethical scorecard. He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now that sounds morbid, but that is the best news in the world. Because how does God look at me? How does God judge me? How does God evaluate me? Does he evaluate me on the basis of my failures? on the basis of my sins, on the basis of my inconsistencies, on the basis of my pathetic, half-hearted attempts at obedience? No. He looks at the blood of the lamb, and when he sees the blood, he passes over. The lamb is the substitute who dies in the place of the people of God. That's why, by the way, God gives such exact specifications here. The lamb's got to be a year old. It's got to be blameless. No spot. No blemish. You've got to tally it up exactly. Exactly one lamb for one household. You've got to take into account all the people who are eating. Why, why is God so uptight about it? Why is God so specific? Because it's not like God's going to eat the lamb. So why is he so exact about it? It's because he's driving home a point. He is showing them that the lamb is the substitute for the people of God. Here's why he's so intentional to teach his people this reality. Because one day, about 1,500 years later, God's going to send another lamb. And this time, the lamb didn't simply die in the place of the firstborn. The lamb was the firstborn. God gave his own firstborn son. God gave his only begotten son to be the lamb who would bear the sins of his people so that you and I who are, have rebelled against God, you and I who have turned our backs on God can become children of God. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The perfect lamb, the apostle Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's our only hope. Like when it really comes down to it, your hope can't be in your performance. It can't be in your ability to manage the world. That is the only hope we have, but the good news is that's the only hope we need. 
as the only way that God can establish justice in the world and not destroy us in the process. When I see the blood of the Lamb, I will pass over you. So what do we do with that? Like, how do we respond to this God who has shown himself to us? Because the fact is, like, most of us don't own sheep. You're probably not going home to kill the sheep and paint your house with it. Um, You will never get that approved by your homeowners association. Let me just warn you uh, about that right now. So what do we do with this? Three responses, three responses that you see in this passage. The first, trust. Trust, simply trust what God has said. Trust what God has shown us. Trust the sacrifice that he has provided. Stop trusting your ability to manage the world. Stop trusting your ability to manage your own ethical and moral and religious portfolio. Stop trusting your ability to make yourself right with God. Trust what God has said. Trust the blood of the Lamb. Something really fascinating in in this passage. So if you look at chapter 11, verse 7, God says, I'm going to make a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. And so you might read that and think, okay, well, hey, I'm a Hebrew. I'm good to go. But that's actually not where God goes in the passage. What he shows is that Israelites and Hebrews are both alike under the judgment of God. And the only thing that will save them is by trusting in the substitute that God has provided. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. The question is, do you believe that? Like, not just do you believe that as some theological construct, not just do you believe that as some cognitive idea. Do you believe in your heart of hearts, do you believe at the core of your being that Jesus paid it all? Because if you believe that, it'll revolutionize your life. It'll set you free from shame and guilt and condemnation. That thing that you can't forgive yourself for, that's the sin Jesus died for. That that sin that keeps you awake at night, that's the sin Jesus died for. That struggle that you keep fighting, that's the sin Jesus died for. That thing that you try to hide from everybody, that thing that you even try to hide from yourself, that's the sin Jesus died for. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Substitution. What that means is that on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your life, so that he could treat you as if you had lived his life. What that means is that now, even though your conscience condemns you, even though your track record condemns you, now God is just as committed to you He accepts you. He loves you as much as he loves and accepts and is committed to Jesus Christ. If you trust that, that'll set you free from shame and guilt and condemnation. It'll set you free to be honest. It'll set you free to be honest with yourself, to be honest with others, to be honest with God, because now I don't need to hide anymore. Anything you find out about me, anything I find out about myself, Jesus died for it. It was dealt with. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It'll set you free to be gracious and patient with other people because you realize God didn't love me and God didn't accept me because I've got it all together. God loves me and accepts me on the basis of his mercy and that sets me free to be merciful to others. That'll set you free as we sang just a few minutes ago. That'll set you free from fear because now the worst thing that can happen to you has already happened to you. You have died with Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been buried with Christ. You have been raised up 
with Christ and you are no longer a slave to fear because you're a child of God. It's the first response. First response is to trust. Second flows out of it. Second response, obey. Obey. Uh, Alec Mateer has just a really helpful, simple definition of faith. He says this, the essence of faith is trust that obeys. Like, you want to know what faith is? That's what it is. It is trust that leads to action. It is trust that leads to obedience. Right? So, so think about this. You're a Hebrew. You're living 3,500 years ago. You hear that God shows up, and God's like, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to kill the lamb, and you need to put the blood on the doorpost, and then your life will be saved. And you're like, all right, cool. I believe that. And then you don't do anything. You don't do anything. What good does that do? You're going to be in a world of trouble. Faith leads to obedience. Trust leads to action. When God calls his people out of slavery in Egypt, he is calling them into a new life. He's not just calling them out of Egypt to abandon them. He is calling them out of Egypt to bring them to himself. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Exodus chapter 12, verse 2. This is so cool. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So God is literally rearranging their calendar based on the Passover. Why is he doing that? It's because this is a new beginning. It's because God is creating a new people, because God is building a new humanity, because God is rescuing them from slavery to their false gods, and he is bringing them out into the freedom of serving the one true God. That's what true faith produces in us. It produces obedience. It produces a new way of life. It produces an entirely new way of being human in the world. So trust, obey, finally, remember. Remember. Verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And then over the next two chapters, God lays out these instructions of how they're to practice this. And not just them, but how they're going to pass it down to their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, and their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren throughout all generations. And I think this is really important for us to think about. One, simply as followers of Jesus, but two, as modern 21st century people who have very short attention spans and have very short memories when it comes to what has come before us. We are so prone to forget as the people of God. And over the next few chapters of the book of Exodus, we're going to begin to see ourselves more and more in this story, and we're going to see how forgetful we are as the people of God. I mean, think about this story. God sends these plagues. He he defeats their enemies in Egypt. He delivers them out of slavery. He literally parts the Red Sea, and they walk through on dry ground. And the very next thing you know, they're turning their backs on God. The very next thing you know, they're like, okay, yeah, that's cool, but you know what? I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to slavery. I want to go back to the false gods that I worshipped back there because they have forgotten the deliverance of the Lord. And I'm just like them. And you are just like them. So often I forget that God has delivered me. So often I forget that he has ransomed me, that he has purchased me with the blood of Jesus. So often I forget that he has saved me with the blood of the lamb. And yet, God is so patient with me. 
gently reminds me over and over and over again, don't forget who you are. You're my son, and I love you, and I have redeemed you, and I have called you out of slavery, and I have called you into my family, and I am never walking away from you, and I am never giving up on you. God knows that we're a forgetful people. That's why he calls us as his followers to be a community of remembrance. A community of remembrance where we remind each other of the redemption we have in Christ. So that when I forget, you can remind me. And when you forget, I can remind you. That's why he gives them this this Passover feast. It's a rhythm of remembrance that bolsters their faith. Every year, a Jewish family would, would, would gather around the feast and, and the father of the family would, would uh, lay out the feast and he would begin retelling the story. But he didn't just tell it as if it was something that happened a long time ago. They, they would actually put themselves in the story. They would say, I was a slave in Egypt and this is what the Lord did for me when he brought me up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Because they realized this isn't just something that happened to a group of people thousands of years ago. This is something that God has done for me. He delivered me. He saved me by the blood of the Lamb. And every firstborn son would sit around that table and they would look literally at a lamb lying there, a lamb that had just been slaughtered and killed, and they would look at it and they would know with unmistakable clarity, the only reason I'm alive is because the lamb died. The only reason I'm alive is because the lamb died. Friends, let's be a community that remembers that. A community that reminds each other of God's redemption. But can I tell you, this is why we're doing the whole spiritual formation thing. This is why we're pressing in to spiritual formation as a church. It's because that's what spiritual formation is. Spiritual formation is becoming a people, becoming a community who live in light of what God has done for us and see our entire lives and our identities and our entire community shaped by that reality. This is why we encourage you to connect to a missional community in a discipleship group. Because we need people in our lives reminding us of this good news. This is why we study the scriptures. We don't study this book so that we can know more stuff. We don't study this book so that we can have some obscure knowledge of Bronze Age religion. We study this book because we need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. That's why we gather together every week to take the Lord's Supper. Because this is the meal that Jesus left us. This is the Passover meal that he calls his followers to eat as we wait for his return. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth takes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And he goes up to Jerusalem, the Bible says, to celebrate the Passover. And he takes some of his closest friends with him and they, they rent out or they borrow the upper room of this house. And Jesus kind of takes the place of the father of this new family that, that he's creating and he, he brings them all together and he starts to lay out the feast and he starts to talk about it. And all his disciples are sitting around the table and they look at the feast and there's like an elephant in the room or I guess not in the room and, and they're afraid to talk about it because they got all the stuff. They got the wine, they got the bread, they got all the stuff for the Passover, but there's something missing. Jesus forgot the most important part. There's no lamb there. They're kind of looking around. Who's going to tell Jesus that he forgot the lamb? And yet Jesus then takes bread and he starts to break it and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And he takes a cup and he begins to pour out wine and he says, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And it's at that point they realize Jesus has not forgotten the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the lamb who gives his life as a ransom. He is the lamb who gives his life as the substitute to buy them back from the power of sin and death and hell. And they begin to realize the only reason I'm ever going to be alive is because the lamb dies for me. He begins to lay that out for him. And then he tells them, this is not the end of the story. Because one day I'm coming back. And when I come back, we're going to gather with my people from every tribe and tongue and nation, my family from every corner of the earth, and we're going to gather together at a feast, at a party that the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. So as we come to eat this meal, we do this with remembrance and anticipation. This meal is a reminder of what Christ has done for us, and it's a promise of what he's going to do in the future. And God always keeps his promises. God always does what he said he'll do. So if you're a follower of Jesus, which does not mean that you're perfect, doesn't mean that you have achieved some ethical standards, simply means that you are trusting in the Lamb of God to take away your sins. If that's true of you, then come and eat and drink and be reminded of this promise. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So the way that we do that, we have stations at the front, we'll have stations in the back, and we simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, and dip it in the cup, and take it and return to our seats. And maybe you're here, and this, this just sounds completely foreign to you, and you've, you've not experienced this, and you, you're exploring Christianity, but you'd say, okay, that, that's not what I'm putting my hope in. And we would just encourage you, don't just do some perfunctory religious ritual here, but spend some time thinking. Spend some time asking yourself, what is it that I am actually trusting in? God promises you can know him and you can come near to him with confidence because of what Jesus has done for you. And you don't need to clean yourself up and you don't need to learn to play some religious games and you don't need to change your political party affiliation or anything like that. You simply need to trust him. Trust that he died in your place and rose again to forgive your sins and to make you right with God. So if you've got questions about that, if you want to explore that, I'd love to speak with you after the service. Let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Father, we are a very forgetful people. We forget the redemption that you have accomplished for us in Jesus. We forget the sacrifice that you have given. We forget the freedom that you have called us into. We forget what it means to be your people and for us to be your God. We forget the blood of the Lamb. And it is so easy for us to go out and to live for other things, to trust in other things, to trust in ourselves, to trust these false gods that, that we used to worship. But you're so patient with us. And you remind us over and over and over again. And even in this bread and this cup, you remind us, my body was broken for you. My blood was shed for you. Father, would you bolster our hope?